All right. Well, you know what I'm going to say. Let's do it. Turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It is Exodus chapter 13, and it is verse 17, where it says, Ve'yehi be'shalach, Pharaoh. So it came to pass, in other words, that uh, when uh, the shalaking happened, and uh, the English usually says Pharaoh had let the people go. No, what shalak means is he literally sent them out. So when Pharaoh had sent these people out, that Elohim led them not by the short way around, the way of the Philistines, in other words, the coastal route, although that was closer, for Elohim said, well, you know what, suppose they uh, repent or groan or regret. And the word repent is a, is a, is a bad translation because it doesn't mean turn around that way. It's actually uh, um, whine a little bit. When they see war, and then they do, in fact, uh, shuv, they return to Egypt. So Elohim led the people about by the way of the wilderness of the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea in, uh, in some renderings, but Bamidbar, in the, in the wilderness. And the children of Israel went up armed out of the land of Egypt. Now this is an interesting word too. It's the first time we see that word armed used in Scripture. And it's actually the root word, and this is kind of funny, but it's related to the, uh, the number five and... Um, this concept of five, so that, that seems to be associated with a battle array. But in any case, they went up armed. And we're not told how they got the arms, but it sounds like when they plundered Egypt, that's um, the most likely place. Now, Moshe, it said, took the bones of Yosef with him, because he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, Surely Elohim will remember you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. So they did. They took their journey from Sukkot. They encamped in Etam, in the edge of the wilderness. And Yahuwah, it says, now we're going to see this is going to be a consistent pattern throughout the rest of the Exodus. Yahuwah went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they might go when they needed to by both day and night. And um, in that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud uh, and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. He did not go back on the commitment. The next chapter says, and it begins with the way that we're used to seeing so many of them begin, and Yehoshua spoke to Moshe, and he said, Speak unto the Benai Israel, that they turn back and encamp before Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, and before Baal Zephon. Over against it, you shall encamp by the sea. So he has something planned here, obviously. And we're going to see how that unfolds. Pharaoh will say of the Benai Israel, they're entangled in the land. Oh, look, they're lost. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will make strong, right? Remember that root word, kazak. I will kazakify Pharaoh's heart. And he'll follow after him. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host. And here comes the uh, the key sentence again. This time, the Egyptians shall know ki ani Yahuwah. And they did so. So this was told to the king of Egypt. The people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was then turned towards those people. And he said, What is this we have done, that we have managed somehow to let Israel go from serving us? Now, Rashi says this is a uh, an interesting uh, comment here, that um, he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariots, took his people with him. Now, we'd normally think, well, what does Pharaoh do? He, uh, he gets his servants, go down there and get the chariots all hooked up, and we're ready to go. But it sounds like, and Rashi's take is, nope, the, uh, both the translation and the understanding is it's Pharaoh did it himself. And what this uh, seems to indicate is kind of a glimpse into his uh, frustration, anger, desire to get on with it. He made his own chariots ready, evidently. 
Um, and he took 600 chosen chariots. I don't think he made all of them ready. Probably just one. And all the chariots of Egypt and the captains over all of them. And it says at this point, Yahuwah made strong. He kazaked the uh, hearts of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And essentially uh, all that were with him, he pursued after the children of Israel because the Benai Israel went out with a high hand. So the Egyptians pursued after him. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, all his horsemen, his army, they overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihahirot in, that, in the place that they were told to go, Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and they whole, they saw the, the biggest army that they had ever imagined, the Egyptians marching after them, and it scared the you-know-what out of them. They were sore afraid, and there it says, the Benai Israel cried out to Yahuwah. And they said, okay, now here's where I would say uh, you know, a little bit of whining is appropriate, because that's what's happening. <laughs> Because there were no graves in Egypt? Is that why you've taken us away to die out here in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way? To even bother to bring us forth out of Egypt. Isn't this the word that we spoke to you when we were back there saying, hey, leave us alone, that we might just serve as good little slaves to the Egyptians? Because it was better for us to serve those Egyptians than that we should die here in the wilderness. Now, at this point, Moshe, I guess, hasn't become as uh, uh, frustrated as he might later he doesn't respond the way that uh, he is uh, want to uh, a few times after he hears this kind of thing. Instead, this time he says to the people, fear not, stand still. And this is one of my favorite lines in the Parsha here. And see uh, the Yeshuat of Yahuwah. Literally, the salvation of Yahuwah. But it's kind of an interesting uh, phrase in the Hebrew, isn't it? Because he will work for you today. Whereas you've seen these Egyptians today, you ain't going to ever see them again anymore forever. Yehovah will fight for you. You all just hold your peace. Wherefore, Yeshua, and then Yehushua, Yehuah said unto Moshe, Why are you crying out to me? He's talking to, to Moshe. And you speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to get on with it. Essentially, to, uh, to go forward. Journey. In other words, get with it. And lift up your rod, you, Moshe, and stretch it out over the sea and divide it. So what are we going to see here? One of the most famous miracles in all of Scripture. Put your hand up over the sea, divide it, and the Benai Israel shall go into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And I, behold, I will make strong Kazakh the hearts of the Egyptians, and they'll go in after them. And I'll get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So uh, this has been set up, and he is going to make a point. All the Egyptians, he said, shall know ki ani Yahuwah, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and his chariots and upon his horsemen. Now then the messenger, the Malach of Elohim, who went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud removed from before them, and it stood behind them. So essentially it's now acting as a blocking array. And it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud of darkness here, yet it gave light by night over there. And the one came not near the other all the night. So basically, he is not only providing light, he's providing darkness over the camp of Egypt and keeping them apart through the night. So Moshe did as he was told. He stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahuwah caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all night. And it made the sea into dry land, and in fact, the waters were divided. 
And the Benai Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. And the waters, they were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now at this point, of course, because this is arguably one of the most uh, dramatic and uh, memorable and uh, perhaps important miracles that we're going to see in all of Scripture, uh, a couple of additional comments are interesting. And uh, one of them is... That in verse 22 here, we're going to see the um, one of the, um, the 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 major atbashim. Uh, you know, a um, an atbash is the aleph tav bet sheen. That's the nested brackets that tell us something very important is uh, is being encased in these brackets. So this is the open bracket here where it says all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And I'm sorry, that's the second one. That's the that's the bet. The uh, the first one, the Aleph, is the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters walled them on the right hand and on their left. So we're going to see both of these phrases uh, again as we uh, look at the closing brackets of this Atbash, or chiasm. Now, one other comment, I guess, and this is one that, uh, this is more like Markology, but to me it's always been kind of interesting. The um, the concept I call, now I have not seen this in, in Scripture demonstrated. Well, that's not true. I see it demonstrated all the time. But I have not seen anybody call it out the way I like to call it out. And I refer to this as the minimum necessary miracle. Now, in this case, it's a pretty big miracle. But it is the minimum necessary miracle that the Creator uses to accomplish His purpose. And so sometimes, folks, it's a uh, what looks like a chance meeting that might not be a chance meeting at all. In other words, sometimes it's a relatively small thing. You might miss it unless you were watching for it or knew. Other times it's bigger, and sometimes, as we see here, it's literally uh, earth-shattering in its, uh, its importance and uniqueness. So the minimum necessary miracle here, to make his point, to get me honor upon Pharaoh, it's a big miracle. So it came to pass in the morning watch that Yahuwah looked forth upon the host of Egyptians through that pillow of fire and of cloud and discomfited the host of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels. He made them drive heavily. As you can imagine them trying to get, get through the muck. So that the Egyptians said, oh, we need to flee from the face of Israel. For Yahuwah is fighting for them against us, the Egyptians. So Yahuwah said unto Moshe, uh, obviously there's been some time pass here, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Recognize the um, Egyptians, the chariots, and the horsemen? Yeah, that's the uh, the sheen part of the, uh, the atbash. What's in the middle? What's in the middle of the brackets here? Uh, Yah, Yah does what he intended to do. He discomforted the, uh, the Egyptians and caused their chariots to drive heavily, and they said exactly what he had said they would say. Let's flee from, flee from the face of Israel, because it is Yahuwah that fights for them. They knew. Ki ani Yahuwah. And in uh, these cases, it was the last thing they ever knew. Moshe stretched forth his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And Yahuwah overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that went in after them into the sea. So there remained not so much as a single one of them. Here's the final tav of the Atbash, closing out the brackets. But it says the Benai Israel walked upon, yep, just like we heard up front, dry land in the midst of the sea. The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So it says, thus Yahuwah saved Israel that day out of the hand of Mitzrayim. 
or the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Now, this is an interesting one, too. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of midrash on this, and, uh, you know, it just says that Israel saw them dead upon the seashore. And so you figure, okay, well, they saw the bodies washing up, and uh, so much for that. But interestingly, uh, I think, and I, and I appreciate some of the commentaries on this that said, no, you got to understand, this was personal. And what these Egyptians saw was, as they're walking along, that they individually saw the faces of the dead people that had tormented them the taskmasters, and those who had given them grief. The Israelites saw. Okay. The Egyptians that had tormented them. And so uh, at the point where they literally see the faces of some of the people that they recognized or knew, maybe because of their garb or um, you know, a number of other things that would have been obvious, it hits home. Those are the people who were tormenting us. They're gone. So at this point, they begin to realize we really are free. We have, in fact, truly been delivered. And that sets up the final verse in the chapter, where it says, And Israel saw the great work which Yahuwah did upon the Egyptians, and the people, Yareh, they feared Yahuwah, and they believed in, well, they believed, I think it's actually they just believed Yahuwah. They already knew he was real. Now they know that they can believe what he says. And they believed his servant Moshe, as well. So then we get the first of what's going to be two. Uh, later on, there'll be another one, uh, much later on. Uh, Moshe sang this song to the children of Israel uh, and unto Yahuwah, and he spoke, and he said, I will sing unto Yahuwah, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. And here we have it. Yahuwah is my strength and my song. He has become Yahshua He has become Yeshua. This is my Elohim, and I will glorify him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahuwah, Ish Malchama. Ish Malchama. He is a man of war. And I always point this out every year. Uh, Rashi translates it not just the man of war, but the master of war. He has demonstrated it. Checkmate, you might say, in the, in a more modern parlance. But uh, the way I like to think of it is this. It is Ish Malkama, so the man. And in modern English, a little bit parenthetically or uh, uh, colloquially, we might say, yeah, you the man. He is the man of war. And that truly is the implication here. Yahuwah is his name. So Yahuwah Shemo. That is his name. yod heh vav Shemo is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are sunk there in the Sea of Reeds, or uh, some renderings, the Red Sea. The depths cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Yahuwah, glorious in power. O thy right hand, O Yahuwah, dashes in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellency, you overthrew them that rise up against you. You send forth your wrath, and it consumed them as stubble. With the blast of your nostrils, the water were piled up. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, now notice again, here is a uh, another one of these I wills. The, um, the four I wills of the enemy in this case. And we see that there's also four I wills of Hasatan. Of course, the four that the Creator outlined earlier on in the Exodus. Um, so there's a, there's a piracy, if you will, going on here. The enemy says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. 
0 for 4. You did blow with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. And now uh, we have a um, some wording that in the Hebrew ought to sound familiar. And that's why I put this particular song on the retinue this evening. Mikamoka Beilim Yahuwah is how it says, Who is like you, O Yahuwah, among the mighty? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your love, has led the people that you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have taken hold on the inhabitants of Philistia, the sea people, to the north and uh, and east. Then were the chiefs of Edom affrightened. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, takes a hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan are melted away. So essentially what we're seeing here is the story is going to spread and the people in the land that they're going to eventually go into, uh, they will have heard enough stories to be scared of them by that time. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they're still a stone. Till your people pass over, O Yahuwah, till your people pass over uh, that you have gotten. You bring them in and plantest them. You, you put them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Yahuwah, which you have made for you yourself to dwell in, the sanctuary, O Yahuwah, which your hands have established, Yahuwah shall reign forever and ever. Because it says the horses of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, Yahuwah brought back the waters of the sea upon them, over them, but the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. So there is uh, the song, and the song, I think, sets up the dance as well. And um, what's also fascinating to me is we're going to see a word in here, and it says, um, Tachak, and took this person. Turns out we know the person, but this is the first time she's ever in Scripture been called by name. Moses' sister, as it turns out, says this, and Miriam, the prophetess. Okay, so not only do we see her name for the first time, we are told something we haven't, at least up until this point, probably recognized. She is a prophetess, sister of Aaron. Took a timbrel in her hand. All the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam sang or witnessed or answered unto them, Sing ye to Yahuwah, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Moshe led Israel onward from there, from the Sea of Reeds, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. So three days without water... And guess what? When they came to a place called Marah, and that word in Hebrew literally means bitter, they couldn't drink the waters at Marah because they were Marah. That makes sense, doesn't it? So the place, guess what the name was called? Yeah, Marah. People murmured there against Moshe, and they said, well, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to Yahuwah, and Yahuwah showed him a tree. And he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. So the tree purified and sweetified the waters, so there it says, he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and he tested them. He made for them a statute. Now that word, of course, is huch in the Hebrew, and a mitzpat, mishpat. One of them, mishpatim, plural, but a singular one, a mishpat. So he made a huch and a mishpat. Now the question, of course, that uh, there has been speculation about is, um, what were they? And um, there's an interesting answer, which I'll give you in just a second once we finish the, uh, the, this part of the story. 
And uh, you can kind of confirm that from Scripture, which is why I mention it. If it was just somebody's opinion, I, I don't think it'd be worth talking about. But uh, there is a, a case to be made here. He said, Yahuwah said, if you will diligently hearken to the coal, the voice of Yahuwah Yerel, and will do that which is right in his eyes, and will give ear to his commandments, his mitzvotin, plural, and keep all of his hukin, his statutes, well then I'll put none of the diseases upon you, which I put upon the Egyptians, for I am, and here we're going to get another one of the uh, most famous of the names of Yah, I am Yahuwah Rapha. I am yod heh vav your healer, or the one who heals you. So, question. Uh, what were the two statutes? He made for them a statute and an ordinance. And um, essentially there are a, a couple of candidates, anyway. Uh, Rashi suggests that one of the statutes is the Sabbath. And why? Well, because when it comes to the Sabbath, we can actually see that he references the fact that um, you, you kind of already knew this. So at least that's a, a, a rationale for it. Uh, the other one has to do with either the, uh, the honoring of parents, and uh, there's a blessing in that, or perhaps, uh, some suggest, could have been the red heifer too, because that's kind of the, the hook, de tute hooks, the one that is always considered the most enigmatic, the red heifer. All right. Uh, the last verse in the chapter says, And they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and there they encamped by the waters. So the, uh, the words, as commanded, we're going to see when we get to the, uh, the place where it looks like um, they have heard some of these before. All right, from, from there, chapter 16, it says, They took their journey from Elim, and Kol Edad, all the congregation of the Benai Israel, came into the wilderness of Sin, between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed out of the land of Egypt. Now, some will note that uh, there's, a, uh, there's a time later when there's a second Passover, and uh, this would correspond to that. The whole congregation, again, Kol Edat, of the children of Israel murmured against Moshe and against Aaron in the wilderness. And uh, that word there is um, um, loon, looks like how it's pronounced. And I, uh, as you know, sometimes like to think of it as whining, because murmuring just doesn't seem to have the negative connotations in our modern English that this seems to. So whining does make... Uh, make it a little bit more clear why it is that this gets old really fast. The children of Israel then said unto them, Oh, wish we had died there by the hand of Yahuwah in the land of Egypt while we sat by the flesh pots when we did eat bread to the full. We were, we were, it was wonderful. Being slaves was just so, so good. We ate all the bread we needed. And why, oh, why have you brought us for here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger? All right, says Yahuwah to Moshe, Behold, I will cause it to rain lechem from heaven for you, and the people will go out and they'll gather a day's portion every day that I might test them, see whether they will walk in accord with my Torah or not, my instruction or not. So that word in the Hebrew then is uh, Torah T, my instruction. It'll come to pass on the sixth day that they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it'll be twice as much as they get on any other day, the regular gathering. Uh, remember, we just we just finished saying that he gave them a statute and an ordinance, and uh, the suggestion is that it's Sabbath. Well, already we're seeing perhaps a reason why that fits. 
Moshe and Aaron said to all the Benai Israel, Okay, at evening, you shall know that Yahuwah has brought you out from the land of Mitzrayim. In the morning, when you see the glory of Yahuwah, for he has heard your murmuring, your whining, your taluna there, against Yahuwah. Uh, what are we, by the way, that you murmur against us? So Moshe said, Here it will be. This is what's going to be your sign. When Yahuwah gives you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahuwah hears your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? You are, in fact, not murmuring against us. You're not whining about us, he says. You are whining against Yahuwah. So Moshe then says to Aaron, Say this, unto all kol ha'edat, all the congregation of the Benai Israel, come near before Yahuwah, because he has heard uh, your uh, telunatechem, your, your plural y'all's murmurings, your all's whining. So it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Benai Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahuwah appeared in the cloud. And Yahuwah then spoke unto Moshe, and he said, I have heard the telunat, uh, the murmurings, the whining of the Benai Israel, speak unto them, saying, At dusk you shall eat flesh. You want flesh? You're going to get it. In the morning you'll be filled with bread, and you shall know, Ki Ani Yahuwah Elohechem. You all. This time, you shall know. Ki and Yehua. Came to pass in an evening, the quails came up. They covered the camp. Morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there was a fine scale-like thing, fine as hoarfrost on the ground. So, uh, uh, kind of a... Uh, I always think of this uh, probably not the same taste, but a little bit like cotton candy. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to another, one another, uh, Mon, Mon means what? What is it? For they didn't know what it was. So Moshe said unto them, It's the lechem which Yahuwah has given you to eat. So this first use of that word, what is it there, man, is going to turn out to be uh, the name this thing is going to get called. What is it? Well, it's, it's, what it, it's what's it. This is the thing which Yahuwah has commanded. Gather every man according to his eating. You want an omer ahead according to the number of your persons. Take it. For every man of them that are in his tent. In other words, you need more folks. You got more folks. You want to get more food? Go ahead and get it. The Bani Israel did. They gathered more, and some of them got more, some of them got less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing left over. He that gathered little didn't lack anything. They gathered every man according to his eating. So they kind of had a, a sense what they needed to gather, and it turns out that worked very well. So Moshe said unto them, Don't leave any of it until morning. Let no one leave any of it until morning. Notwithstanding, a few, as you might have guessed, didn't hearken. They didn't shamar. But some of them left some of it over till morning, and it bred worms, and it rotted. And Moshe was pretty angry with them. He told them. Now they gathered it morning by morning, every man according to his eating. As the sun waxed hot, it melted. So it came to pass that on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. Two omers for each one, and to all the rulers of the congregation, they came and told Moshe. And he said to them the following, this is that which Yahuwah has spoken. Tomorrow is a solemn rest, a holy Shabbat unto Yahuwah. Bake that which you will bake, seethe what you intend to seethe, and anything that remains over you lay up to be kept until the morning. So here is the one day of the week when they can keep it, and guess what? It's not going to do what it does every other day of the week. So they laid it up. Uh, till the morning, Moshe, uh, as he told them, and it didn't rot, nor were there any worms in it. And Moshe said, Eat today, for today is the Sabbath unto Yahuwah, and today you won't find any out in the field. 
Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath, there will be none. And it came to pass on the seventh day that some of them did go out looking, and they didn't find any. So I guess uh, they, they learned uh, when he says something, listen. And the response to that particular incident is, Yahuwah said to Moshe, How long y'all going to refuse to keep mitzvoti, um, my commandments, and Torati, my instruction? See, that Yahuwah has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day the bread you need for two days. Abide every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the Sabbath day. So people learned. They rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called the name of this stuff, Ma, what? Mana. And it was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moshe said, This is the thing which Yahuwah has commanded. Let an omerful of this be kept throughout your generation. So they put it in the Ark of the Testimony, so that they may see the bread wherewith I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they literally put some of this away. And... Uh, I guess, arguably, it lasted for a long, long, long time in that situation. Moshe then said to Aaron, Take a jar, put an omer full of it in there, the manna, and lay it up before Yahuwah to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahuwah commanded Moshe, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the Benai Israel did, in fact, eat that manna for 40 years. Till they came to a land inhabited, they ate the manna, till they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. And it tells us at the end of this, this is kind of an interesting aside, you know, why at the end of this, and I guess this is no no surprise, they put the chapter break there. An omer, it says, is a tenth part of an ephah. So, uh, you know, they're gathering approximately an omer or a tenth of an ephah per person per day, give or take based on their eating. The final chapter of the Torah portion here says, uh, chapter 17, and kol edat, all of the congregation of the Benai Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin by their stages. We're going to get more detail on this later. According to the commandment of Yahuwah, they encamped in Rephidim, and guess what? There was no water for the people to drink. So what they do? They strove with Moshe, and they said, Give us water so we can drink. And Moshe said to them, Why are you striving with me? And so why do you still try or test Yahuwah? So the people thirsted there for water, and what else? They murmured some more. They whined against Moshe, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and all of our cattle with thirst? So Moshe cried out to, to Yahuwah, and he said, What am I going to do with these people? They are just about ready to stone me. So Moshe was told by Yahuwah, Pass on before the people. Take with you the elders of Israel and your rod, the one that you smote the river with. Take it in your hand and go. And here's what's going to happen. Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb, and you shall smite the rock. Betzur, the Zur, the rock. Uh, some renderings capitalize that, and uh, you can kind of suggest uh, what they're what they're suggesting. And there water shall come out of it that the people may drink. So Moshe did this. He did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The name of the place this time was called Maasah and Meribah. So the uh, the word Meribah has to do with strife, and this is because of the striving of the um, children of Israel, because they tested or they tried Yahuwah, saying, Is he among us or not? Now after this, interesting, immediately, without a pause, Scripture says, Then came Amalek. 
and fought with, with Israel in Rephidim. So they whine, he smites the rock, then came Amalek after um, strife and contention. Moshe then says to Joshua, his, uh, his number two man, uh, other than his brother, uh, go choose some men. I'll go out and fight, and you all go out, and you fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I'll stand on top of the hill there with the rod of Elohim in my hand. Uh, so this is another very famous scene, and we recognize what's going to happen, but it's uh, kind of fascinating to see how it plays out. So Joshua did, as Moshe said, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So they were up where they could see the battle and watch. And it came to pass, when Moshe held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So as long as he held his staff up in his hands, his side won. But you know what? That gets kind of old. You ever try to hold your hands over your head for a long period of time? It gets very heavy. So Moshe's hands got heavy. They took a stone. They put it under him so he could sit down. And uh, then Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. In other words, they stood beside him. You hold your hands up, and we'll hold your hands up with the staff, with the rod. One on one side, one on the other side. And his hands were steady all day long. I bet he was sore. Um, maybe not, because he did have uh, help, as you know, in more than one way, until the going down of the sun. So Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with Lephi Cherev, the edge or the mouth of the sword. I like the mouth of the sword. It's a little more descriptive, and that's the Hebrew term literally. Yehud then said to Moshe, write this down for a memorial in the book. Rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, because I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under Hashemayim, from under the heavens. Now, what's interesting, of course, is we have it written down, as, as was commanded, and we see that there are lots of references to Amalek. Later, we're going to be told um, he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, but uh, the utter remembrance has not yet been blotted out. That's another one of those, uh, I would say, prophetic things that has yet to be fulfilled. So, Moshe built an altar. He called the name of that. He called the name of that. Here comes another of the uh, the most famous of the names of Yahuwah. He called it Yahuwah Nisi. Yahuwah, my banner, is the way I like to render it. But it's Yahuwah, the standard. Yahuwah lifted up. So a banner is lifted up. And this is almost the end of the chapter, and certainly then the end of the Torah portion. And he said, The hand upon the throne of Yahuwah, Yahuwah will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come. Judge Babylon. So come out of her. Hey folks, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back, good morning. And uh, we are going to talk this week about uh, Parsha Beshalak, which is arguably one of the, um, the most miracle chock full in the entire book. And uh, certainly there are lots of famous ones. Uh, if you've seen uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, one of the greatest miracles probably in history, uh, arguably in Scripture, and, and of course those are the same thing. But um, 
I want to talk about that and more this morning. And uh, in order to do that, in order to kind of draw the parallels, because I think the parallels and the place where we stand and the level of the challenge and so forth is uh, is reaching a, a scriptural, a biblical peak, as well as a historic peak when we stand on the verge of obviously what looks like it could be uh, civil war. It's intended to be, I have suggested for a long time. Certainly world war already in progress and uh, likely to expand uh, along with that and no doubt very highly correlated. The greatest economic meltdown, the biggest debt collapse in history. So many things coming to a head at this point. And um, part of the problem is that that is daunting to most folks, to the point where they will uh, literally turn their head and pretend nothing's happening, right? The ostrich with his head in the sand. We've, we've seen all the metaphors. But there's something about this portion that really should, um, I guess you'd say, uh, leap off the page at us, illuminate the situation and so forth. So with that in mind, what I want to do is just a brief recap of the specifics of where we are and what's going on by way of the, um, the story itself. And uh, it kind of starts like this. The, the word Beshalak here is the, uh, the way the Torah portion begins. And, of course, that's the first unique word. It says in a lot of English renderings that when Pharaoh had um, uh, let my people go, when he allowed them to leave, but that's actually not what the word means. As you know, Shalak means to send out, expel. So it came to pass when Pharaoh had expelled the people, had sent them out, that Elohim didn't lead them the uh, the short way via the coastline of the land of the Philistines. Uh, they took the long way home. And that was because he said, I'm uh, concerned that they might basically see what's coming upon them and turn around and decide to go back into bondage. So he led them instead by way of the wilderness of the Sea of Reeds. And it says they went up armed out of the land of Egypt. Now that too is interesting because obviously, um, and we see this in America, the, um, the, the peons aren't allowed to have arms. Uh, master, big brother, the uh, Pharaoh, uh, whatever it is, the Biden Fuhrer, they don't want the peons to have arms. they got to get rid of all of that. So among the plunder, evidently, that the people of the mixed multitude took out of Egypt were uh, swords and shields and you know other kinds of armament, uh, knives and so forth that they would have had with them. So there's the setup. Well, then what? The second part of the setup, this is a line that is going to appear throughout the rest of the story, and indeed for 40 years. Yahuwah went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And this was a consistent pattern, too. Uh, literally, the, um, the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Period. That was uh, one of the many things that he said he was going to do and that he did. And then we get the setup for the, um, the the great miracle itself. I'm going to make strong. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, right? That root word, kazak, uh, kazakify, strengthen Pharaoh's heart. So he might be tempted to weasel out a cave under the pressure of what's fixing to happen, but don't worry, that's not going to happen. I'm going to strengthen the heart of those who follow after him as well. And what's the point? Ki ani Yahuwah. Yep, in this case, it's all Egyptians, all of them will know that I am yod heh vav heh So uh, he did as he said, and uh, Pharaoh drew nigh. And here comes one of the things that I think is going to be really key to uh, understanding the picture, the setup, and the parallels here. Because as you know, I'm a big believer in cycles. That human history repeats, cycles repeat, prophecy repeats. May not repeat exactly, but remember Mark Twain, it rhymes. And we're going to see a lot of that stuff happening. Here is one of the big elements. Pharaoh comes near. Children of Israel, the mixed multitude that have escaped, they lift up their eyes, and there they see it. Most powerful army on the planet. 
gather to do what? Destroy them. They were sore afraid. How's that for an understatement? And the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, cried out to Yahuwah. Now that's not all. And here is um, one of the other elements of this. And it's the timing that I think is so important to pay attention here to. The sequence of what's happening. So as we go through this, I want to especially note the timing and the sequence. So before... This miracle, before Egyptians and Pharaoh have understood intimately, maybe the last thing they ever knew, that Ki and Yahuwah, that he is who he said he was, he made it clear. In fact, he is the man of war, and we're going to see that too. Um, but before that, Egyptians were so afraid, they cried out, all right, maybe that's okay, but then what? I'm sorry, the Egyptians. The Israelites are going to cry out first. The Egyptians are going to cry out later. Anyway, the, the, um, the mixed multitude cried out. They were afraid. And they said, this is the first of what I refer to as the whines in Scripture. Eh, because there were no graves in Egypt. Is that why you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this horrible thing to us? We were just happy being good little slaves to Pharaoh. Don't we tell you that? Leave us alone. It was better for us to uh, live as slaves than to die in freedom out here in the wilderness. How's that for turning upside down so many things that at least Americans pay lip service to, whether they know or not? It's, um, It's before we see anything else. All right, here comes what I think is one of the most inspiring words in the book. And it, by the way, is also one of the most prophetic. Moshe says to all the people, right, the most repeated command in the entire book first, fear not. Fear not. It's going to be repeated. Well, the the numbers I've heard are on the order of 900 times in the Bible, between angels telling people that and Yahuwah telling people that and people like Moshe telling people that. Fear not. Stand still. Be still and know. We see that one repeated too. And see, literally, the Yeshuat of Yahuwah, the salvation of yod heh Now, one of the things that I also am going to suggest is absolutely dripping off the pages here are the metaphors, the parallels, the things that show that this rock that was with them, Paul says the same thing, that rock is uh, Yahushua. The Torah made flesh. The bread of life that we're going to see in here. All of these things. You can't miss it. But I guess people do. Uh, still, this is being laid out as part and parcel of this great, big, amazing story. And that, too, is part of the parallels. Before they knew who he was, matter of fact, long before, they see all the evidence that's right here. He is going to do this. You stand still. You fear not. You just watch. Buckle your seatbelts, maybe. Because he is going to do all the work. Whereas you've seen the Egyptians here today, these really scary dudes that were your taskmasters, all these um, charioteers and men on horseback that are just scaring the living you-know-what out of you, don't worry, you ain't never going to see them again. Well, actually, you're going to see them one more time, but um, you'll have an understanding that at that point they can't hurt you anymore, right? Yahuwah will fight for you. You, you just hold your peace. All right, why are you standing here crying out to me, says Yahuwah to Moshe. Tell the children of Israel, go on, head them up, move them out. Go forward. And then he gives them the commandment that is, of course, uh, um, memorialized in story and song and in movies. Uh, Lift up your um, rod, stretch it out over the sea, and behold, this miracle is going to happen. The children of Israel will go forth in the midst of the sea on dry ground. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. I will make them strong. You go in after them. They'll go in after you. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh. So here is part 
of the layout, and upon all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and again, second time, all of the Egyptians shall know Ki Ani Yehu, when I've gotten honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, upon his horsemen. Yeah, this so called mighty army. And then we know the story, and I'm going to come back to the story in just a second because I think that is key. There's one really interesting element of this that uh, should also so stick out. But let's let's review just a couple of things. We don't want to set up the parallels, and then we'll come back and we'll go to the um, uh, one of those uh, bright flashing red lights, the HTML symbol in Scripture that I think is so amazing, the Atbash. And there's one of those, a big one, in here as well. But uh, let's let's set it up first, because uh, then the flashing red light will make more sense. The um, the whole story, the point, as I've mentioned many times, and he mentions over and over and over again, is Ki Ani Yahuwah. They will know, you will know, all Egypt will know that I am who I say I am. I am what I am, and what importantly, you can know I will be. And they whine. They whine before they even see any of this, and still, the miracle happens. So it's the timing, the sequence that's interesting. We're going to come back to that because there are several other elements of the sequence here. All right, well then let's pause and let's ask ourselves, what are, what are we seeing today? What What is it that matters about this? Uh, you know, we read the story every year. Some of us have read it many, many times. We've, we've seen the movie, you know, have the t-shirt. We, we understand, we think, what this is about this great miracle, the parting of the Red Sea, or probably more accurately, the Sea of Reeds. Uh, if you've seen some of the archaeologists, people like Michael Rood have talked about it and others before him, um, that the, you know the chariot wheel's been discovered at certain places and looks like there might be a land bridge deep underwater. And uh, So you, what you have are individuals that, A, say, well, this didn't happen, and B, they say, well, if it did happen, there's a natural explanation for it. So that leads me to one other thing I want to throw on the table as a setup before we go. And you've probably heard me talk about this before. But for those that haven't, uh, it's called the minimum necessary miracle. Now, this is Markology. In other words, this is, this is my understanding. It's a way that I like to take a look at some of these things in Scripture and how the Creator works. You don't have to agree. I believe Scripture supports them, but it doesn't come right out and say this. So it's not me adding to or subtracting from. It's just saying this looks like a principle that I think is worth pondering. So the minimum necessary miracle says, and, and he gives a lot of support for it, I believe, uh, you know, his word does not return void. It accomplishes what I intend it to accomplish when I send it out and so forth. And that is true of the miracles as well. So a lot of us, I would certainly say, and I'm sure almost everybody listening would say, I've seen miracles, um, not necessarily quite as big as the parting of the Red Sea, but we've certainly seen miracles in our lifetime. Sometimes it's a chance encounter, uh, what we might call a divine appointment, where something happens, or maybe in uh, probably most of us can have or remember this too, uh, but for a second or so, or a, a delay, or a divine intervention, I might have been at the wrong place at the wrong time, car accident, plane wreck, um, major disaster, you name it, but he saved me. And we see that as a miracle, even though other people might say, oh, that's just sheer chance. Well, this is where the minimum necessary miracle part enters in, because um, I, I think, and again, can't prove this, but I think the idea is he, uh, he, he meddles with the universe, and um, you know his his physical rules he keeps he plays by his own rules his his uh, law of gravity and uh, you know the various things that we understand as part of of physics we don't see that violated very often but occasionally you know people will say I, I certainly saw what I think looks like that so the minimum necessary miracle in other words is the um, the thing that is able to accomplish his purpose and it is the minimum thing 
in terms of an um, out-of-the-ordinary appearance to accomplish what it is that he has in mind or has in his plan at any particular time. Now, sometimes, and that's why I think there's been so much setup for this miracle, sometimes the miracle that he has in plan is really is truly one that's earth-shattering, that's um, uh, history-changing, that is the kind of thing that gets recorded in, uh, in books, and as we're going to see in this portion, in song. Because it really is something that everybody who saw it will never forget. And it has not only prophetic implications, but spiritual implications. People will talk about, you know, coming through the water and the relevance to the mikvah, a.k.a. Uh, baptism or the uh, uh, water, uh, you know, indoctrination, understanding that's associated with water and cleansing. There, there are so many pictures, in other words, that we, that we see coming out of this. It's no wonder that this minimum necessary miracle is a really big one. So that's part of it. Let's talk about some of the parallels then and things that we can look at in Scripture and see and ask, um, you know, where are we at in in terms of the various cycles? Uh, A lot of these I've talked about frequently. I am a firm believer that the cycles repeat and that if we look at the great cycles in history and economics, there are war cycles and there are um, boom and bust cycles in economics. You've heard of the Kondratiev wave, the Elliott wave. People that look at stock markets see patterns and charts and, and all of them repeating cycles and cycles upon cycles. Okay, well, here we go. There is also a great big Atbash in Scripture that I believe, and increasingly I think it's more and more clear, has been partially completed. What am I talking about? Well, the Exodus, the story we're talking about now, is about the delivery of his people out of bondage by a mighty hand. And uh, they, they go through the wilderness, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. A lot of things happen to them. And um, what? Uh, well, as a result of that, we have an indication. We have a proof. He is who he says he is. I will be what I will be. I have done, and I will do what I have said I will do. Ki ani Yahuwah. You will know, the world will know. We have that. We also have prophecies that are going to be, um, well, for example, Moshe is probably the first one at the end of chapter 30, as a matter of fact, of, of Deuteronomy. Uh, he comes out and says, look, uh, this has been a great exodus. There's a greater one yet to come in the end of days. And that's the terminology that's used right there in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In the end of days, there's going to be an even greater exodus. And he says, wherever you are, scattered through every nation, tribe, tongue, people, I'll redeem you. I'll pull you back out. I will gather you. I know where you are, even if you're not sure. Even if you don't know who you are, I still do. And he will regather, and he will bring people together and back into the land. It's a promise. Well, it hadn't happened. So there is a, um, if you will, a bracket. The Atbash is this idea of an open parent and a closed parent, or an open bracket and a closed bracket. Things that we see in Scripture, patterns, and then we can recognize, well, sometimes, as in this one, the open bracket is there. There has been a first exodus. The second exodus is prophesied, but we haven't seen it yet. So where are we? How close are we? Well, one of the things that I think we can, can see is there were patterns that led up to the first exodus. The three times three plus one. How's that for a repeating pattern of threes that add up to a nine plus one, the unique uh, final um, plague, if you will, in the, uh, in the land of Mitzrayim? of the death of the firstborn, are we going to see something like that? I tend to think, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of the nature of the Creator. He does nothing but what he first declares his intentions through my servants, the prophets, he says. Well, he has done that. And we're also going to see so many of the parallels in those three sets of three play out. And uh, that's a fascinating study. We won't go through all that today, but suffice it to say, they were all judgments on the fake gods of Egypt. 
the Nile River, the frogs, right? You name it. Uh, fire and ice, hail, and the things that were represented there. Will we see something similar? I think we will. As a matter of fact, we may or may not have already seen the first ones. Uh, other patterns in there, remember, some of them, uh, all of um, the mixed multitude, including those in Israel, had to deal with, suffer through some of the first things, like the Nile River turning to blood and the frogs. And then later on, he made a separation. Didn't affect the people that were his. I think that, too, is part of the pattern that we'll see repeat. So, um, you know, where are we? Well, as we see that pattern begin to repeat, then we know that this greater exodus, the second one that is talked about, is at hand. And that is part of what I want to note here, and part of what I think, as we go through this, uh, it ought to both, um, well, scare the living hell out of people who do not know him, and encourage those who do, and who seek to, and who may not even be aware yet, but will. That, you know, as, as Moshe says, fear not, stand still, see the salvation of Yahuwah. They hadn't seen it yet. They did. We have not, perhaps, seen it. We maybe haven't seen it in the way that we will. That's encouraging. Stand still. Watch. Now, as we go through this, there are some other elements that I think are, are really key. And, and this is the part, while well, I admit... Um, some of us, and that would include me, you know, because we're human and, and we, we look at the world and we say, oh, I, I know, you know, Pharaoh's chariots, that was probably scary to people that didn't know any better. But that's not nearly as scary as F-16s and bioweapons and nuclear warfare and, and thermonuclear Armageddon and so forth. Uh, they, they didn't have anything to deal with. Well, you know, folks, there's only one time appointed for man to die. And when it comes, whether it's by sword or by thermonuclear annihilation, it's equally fearful because it's the end, and it's equally terminal. So maybe, you know, maybe uh, we just need to put all of this in the proper perspective. They looked up, they saw what was happening there, and it scared the you-know-what out of them. And um, arguably, rightfully so. They cried out to Yahuwah. Now then they did what I'm hoping we can avoid. That is, they whined. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm hoping that if we are at least prepared, maybe we can avoid some of these pitfalls, and I do think that's part of the reason why he says, See, I have told you beforehand. So back to the parallels. I, I think we are looking for the greater exodus. We're starting to see some of the cycles. We understand the cycles. We understand the patterns. We, we can hopefully recognize the open atbash, the open bracket, the open parentheses, and saying, and we're looking for the closing parentheses. Now with that, let's talk about what we've seen just in the last week. Some of the things that um, are really, really indicative of here we are on the cusp on the precipice of something that could go either way and could go nasty big time either way. So, of course, I'm referring to what we had in the news. Uh, first, you had the Supreme Court, and this I'll admit, it really, and i got to say the word because there's just no cutting any punches here on this one, it really pissed me off. I see these black-robed priests of another god. They put their hand on the Bible, and they swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, and then, let's be kind on this part too, they shat upon it. They basically said, the hell with you and the horse you rode in on. The Constitution says that invasion is a serious thing. And we, the central government, has a duty to protect the states from invasion. It was part of the compact they signed. Hell with that. We ain't going to do that. Matter of fact, we'll say, come on in. You just invade away. And if Texas tries to put up barbed wire or concertina wire to stop it, well, hell, we'll send in big Biden's uh, Gestapo and we'll cut that down. Because we want the invaders to come in and destroy the country and take your stuff. How's that for gang rape in the Constitution? So the Supreme Court said, yeah, come on, that's going to happen. You've got, no, you've got no thing to say about it. Well, and Texas stood up to them, 
And um, I, I think part of the interesting thing here is that um, a lot of folks, and that would include yours truly, have watched Greg Abbott in Texas and said, hey, you know, the guy the guy looks a little bit like a sellout. Occasionally he'll do the right thing or he'll pay lip service to the right thing. But do we trust him? And I'll admit I haven't. And maybe or maybe not. Now, today and this week, he started to develop a backbone. He said, okay, we're going to ignore that, that asinine ruling. We're going to quote the Constitution. He got it right. He quoted the articles in the Constitution that says Texas has every right. When the um, central government fails and it's sworn, pledged, uh, literally before Yah duty to protect the states from invasion, he ain't going to do it. Well, A, you got to wonder why the guy hadn't been impeached and convicted and thrown in the jails by now for treason. But beyond that, we will. So the National Guard has come out, and uh, they are saying we will uh, we will defend the borders and so forth. Uh, what does the Biden fewer do? Uh, he he issues an ultimatum and says, uh, "No, you're not. We'll nationalize the National Guard. I'll threaten you with unspecified things." Well, that deadline has come and gone, and we haven't seen it yet. I did see a note from the Border Patrol Union saying we're not going to obey Biden's orders. Okay, so that's interesting. A uh, number of states have come out and said we stand with Texas against this. We can read the Constitution too. Amazing. And 25-plus uh, states at this point have said, uh, we will do what it says, and the hell with a, uh, with a central government that is violating its oath and that is trying to destroy the country. So it looks like, in other words, the battle lines are being drawn, and we stand on the precipice of something really potentially ugly. Well, okay, so there's some parallels in there with what we saw in ancient Egypt and some things that aren't. Uh, obviously, though, when it comes to the potential for a massive conflagration, yeah, that's here. Uh, what else? There's there's one other element of this that I think is kind of fascinating. And uh, I heard a um, fellow that I uh, I don't know very well, and I won't name in this context, but um, certainly has a special forces background, and he was issuing a word of caution. And it went something like this. Look, you got all these people, the sunshine patriots. You've heard the uh, the poetic quotes from uh, uh, times before. And uh, people that will, uh, will, will talk the talk, but will they walk the walk, right? You can pry my rifle from my cold, dead hands. And I actually was, uh, I've seen uh, Charlton Heston in person, you know, do, do that one. Um, same guy, by the way, that lifted up an AR-15 the way he did the staff in um, Cecil B. DeMille's classic. Isn't that interesting? Well, the point is, the uh, the Special Forces guy and others have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've seen that kind of bravado, that kind of bravado, that kind of testosterone-laced um, uh, hoo-ha. What happens when the uh, you-know-what actually hits the fan and when the fighting actually starts? And, and his caution was, you ain't seen nothing if you haven't been in combat. And if you don't recognize the capability of special forces and overwhelming force and uh, aerial recon and thermal imaging and, um, you know, massive artillery and um, F-16s and, and um, you name it, uh, weaponry that most people can, you know, maybe seen newsreel footage of, but not the same when it's up close and personal. And what he said is, uh, don't doubt the level of, uh, of what you're up against here. In other words... This is, in fact, the most powerful military scary force. People look at this, and they should be crying out to the Creator and saying, Oh, no, we are really afraid. So that parallel is undeniable. And, and that's where I think things really kind of get interesting. Because what is being set up here is this conflagration, conflagration and confrontation. There you go. Um, remember, the Biden Fuhrer. 
The guy who hates the very concept of the slaves being able to say no to whatever tyranny they want to slam down people's throats. And if he wants to sniff the hair of your little girl and whatever else, too, you can't stop me. Because remember, your AR-15 is worthless against my F-16s. At least those that are pulling my puppet strings, their F-16s. So uh, kind of like Pharaoh, we got the hubris of a guy who uh, obviously... Uh, uh, doesn't know much more. Who is this Yahuwah? I know him not. Uh, there, there are parallels there too. What's the bottom line here? Well, just like what we have seen set up, I can't help but think so much of this is now coming to a head. Um, I, I've used this line a lot lately from uh, the, uh, the well-known evangelist Billy Graham. And he credits it to his wife, but he said, right, I'll do it, I'll do it in Billy Graham's voice as best I can. If the Lord God in heaven does not judge the United States of America, he will owe a sincere apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said that decades ago. He's been passed now for a number of years. So if it was true then, how much more so now? When, you know, things that I think Billy Graham literally couldn't conceive of, right? Cutting the genitalia off little boys and girls and injecting them with chemicals and putting people to the poison poke and changing their very DNA and dumbing them down and teaching things in the public cesspools that are complete anathema. Yeah, if they were deserving of judgment in the United States decades ago, how much more so now? And why hadn't it happened? So when you put all that together and ask, what are we up against I kind of tend to come down like this. And most of you have heard me say these things, and I think a lot of us are on the same page here. Um, that's part of the reason we gather together and, and let iron sharpen iron. But it looks something like this. Um, we are approaching some kind of a cusp, some kind of a decision point, some kind of a climax of truly biblical proportions. Is it thermonuclear war? Well, if it, if it destroyed the whole world... And no flesh survived. That violates the scripture that says a lot of people are going to die. Let's just be honest. And a whole lot of things have got to happen, some of which we can see in place, some of which are beginning to happen. But uh, obviously the mark of the beast, while it's you can smell it from here, we can see the precursors and they're all over the place. A lot of people are already lining up to get ready for it. It hasn't come to complete fruition. So where are we along the timeline? Well, we're still on this side of it, whatever that means. We still see some things to come. And I can't help but think that uh, when this one boils out and we, we see it all play out, all of the elements that I just read through, uh, the setup for this picture here. Elohim led the people by, uh, took the long way home. Okay? And um, he said, uh, because what's going be, to be happening is going to be very scary. I don't want them to go right back into bondage. If I'm going to carry them out of bondage, out of, for example, the slave bondage of uh, modern America, uh, the modern world, debt bondage, you name it, yeah, we can see those parallels too. Uh, I don't want them going back. And um, we're going to have to set them up so that they're ready for some of the miracles. Ultimately, they're going to have to know, just like Moshe said, stand back, fear not, stand still and see Yeshua, the salvation of Yahuwah. There is going to be this confrontation with the greatest powers on the planet. And that's where, that's where I will return to the story with the setup. Because, again, uh, you listen to the special forces types and they say, no, you, you ain't got no clue. Uh, you know, when they bust down the doors of, of, of these houses and when they go door to door to take people's guns and they say, you pride from my cold dead, eh! they don't even finish the sentence, is, is what um, uh, essentially the military folks are saying. You have no idea what you're up against. Well, you know what, folks? I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. They don't have a clue what they're up against.
And therein lies the rub. That's why, ultimately, I think that one of the keys here is we are going to be told, and I think he's actually telling us, we're reading it, I'm, I'm reading it right now, fear not, stand still, see the salvation of Yeshua. Now, does that mean we, um, we close our eyes and pretend it's not going to happen and are totally blind to what's going on? No. Stand still. Watch. Be ready. They did come out of the land of Egypt, after all. They had to get up off their blessed assurances, you've heard that before, and come out. And what does Yeshua say? Or what does Yahuwah say here? Uh, tell them to go forward. Tell them to go on, move on. Now, at this point, I'm going to tell one more story that I don't like to build doctrine on, but I do think is important when it comes to building confidence and maybe some of our understanding. So um, with that in mind, this is something that I'm going to mention which is not explicitly scriptural. However, it does fit with scripture as written. In other words, it fits in the gaps. It, does not, uh, it, it doesn't go against it. It may or may not be true, but let's see if it doesn't at least give us a little bit of confidence and um, help us to understand what it means, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of Yeshua. Okay, the story goes like this. Moshe stretched out his hand over the sea. Yahuwah caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Minimum necessary miracle. Notice, okay, it's not quite, the description in the scripture is not quite like what we see in the movie. Movie's plural, but obviously the one that everybody knows, the Ten Commandments, where the water's just, and the big green sea is standing there, and everybody's going, oh, and then they walk in. It took longer than that. It happened essentially uh, overnight. And then it says, and the children of Israel went into the midst of sea upon the dry ground. There was a wall of water on their left, on their right hand, and on their left. Now, meanwhile, while this is going on, remember that cloud, that pillar that's dividing them, it's still to their rear, separating them from the Egyptians. So they got time. So they go in. Now, the rest of the story goes like this. Here is the, uh, here is the unprovable part that I've always found kind of, um, well, it, it, it's really interesting and, and maybe even amazing. And it goes like this, that the waters were divided. And, of course, what we can see here is it took a while. It wasn't, uh, you know, one second they're there and the next second they're gone. No, it was that the waters piled up and piled up and the east wind blew. And he says, all through the night. Okay, so the question is, when they went through on dry ground, um, and you got three million people here too, right? Maybe more. But uh, men, women, children, animals, you name it, this, uh, this doesn't happen. It's not like you just say, okay, let's all go. And then five minutes later, they're all in the water or in between the waters and on the dry land. No, this is probably a process that took hours to play out, hours to develop and hours to play out. So, so what about the first ones? And that's where we're at. And essentially the story goes like this, that um, there were people that were hesitating and they, uh, they saw the water there, and they saw the things piling up, but it wasn't quite yet dry ground. Now, what was it Yeshua's just finished saying? Tell the people to go forward. Well, that was before Moshe did his thing with the rod. Tell them to go. And I can't help but think that, too, kind of buttresses this, the essence of this story. And the essence of the story, we don't know who it was, but the essence of the story is that there were some leaders, some leaders of men, uh, maybe Hur, possibly uh, Yeshua, um, wouldn't be surprised. And the um, the Midrash, and uh, the story the way I've heard it says Hur was probably one of these folks. Uh, Ben-Hur, son of Hur, later, of course. Was, uh, anyway, that what they did is they said, come on, what are we waiting for? 
and that these brave men, these men who believed Yah, began to walk right smack into the water. And that it was only when the, the, the men started to walk in faith before Yah and do what it was that they were being told to do, go forward, that the, ro- the waters moved the rest of the way. In other words, that these guys are just, they're, they're gung-ho, they're walking out into the water, and it hasn't yet finished doing its thing. But when their feet touch the water, and when they start to walk in up to their ankles, and then their knees, and then up towards their waist, now the water's finished, and they begin to part, and then eventually, the rest of the crowd is able to go through on dry land. Now, can I prove that story? No. Um, is it something that we use to build doctrine? Well, arguably not. But I do at least think that it helps to build confidence and it helps to build kind of an attitude that I find valuable. And that is, when he says go, you don't have to wait for it to all be dry land in order to say, all right, I trust in him, I'm going to start going. It's maybe going to take me a few seconds to get out there. I'm going to go. I will walk in faith. And to me, that is the element, that's the reason why I tell this story uh, along with the parting of the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea and the concept and the, and the context of this minimum necessary miracle. Because you know what? Why is it the minimum necessary miracle? It has to do with uh, what accomplishes his purposes in a given situation. Well, this, this time his purpose includes uh, a sign for all history, a sign of one of the greatest miracles ever that can uh, buck up our faith and remind us of, well, he is who he says he is for all generations. Part of that. Part of the minimum necessary miracle, I think, is recognizing, hey, some of us will see it before others do. And those of us that know the miracle's coming can walk in faith even before it is fully manifest. And to my mind, that is part and parcel of what I want to try to get across today. The kind of faith that moves mountains, the kind of faith that's bigger than a mustard seed, the kind of faith that is able to walk into the water even before everything that they know is going to happen has played out. So there's part A of the the story of the the miracle and uh, what people are up against. And now let's talk about the other piece of this, the uh, the flashing red HTML symbol, the neon sign, the Atbash. And remember, the Atbash is Aleph Tav Beit Sheen, the first and second letters of the Hebrew language, the first open bracket and the first open parent, and then the second to last and last letters, which would be the second open parent and the second or close parent and second close bracket. So the the word itself kind of describes the um, the pattern that we're looking for in language. And uh, you know, in in modern HTML, we actually have a an open this and a close that. So you have uh, you know like bold on and bold off, and sometimes they're enclosed in. Uh, uh, the little triangular symbols, the greater than and less than symbols, or brackets, or whatever. So that's exactly, uh, I guess, the people that wrote the HTML, if they uh, were biblically literate, would recognize, hey, it was in Scripture long before we figured out how to put it in computer um, document um, markup languages. Okay, so here we go. Moshe stretched out his hand. C comes back. And the Benai Israel went into the midst of the sea, on the dry ground, the waters, a wall on their right hand and on their left. So you catch the, the keywords in there, midst of the sea, dry ground, waters on the right hand and on the left. If we look ahead, we're going to see that a few verses later, as a matter of fact, it's verse 29, at the end of the sequence where it says, but it recaps for us what happened with the very same words. 
The children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, the waters, a wall on the right hand and on the left. You'd have to be almost blind to miss, hey, didn't we just read that? Yeah, there's the open parent and the closed parent. So that's the end of the Atbash. Let's go to the next one. Came to pass in the morning watch. Yehuah looked um, forth upon the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire. He discomfited the host. He took off their chariot wheels. So we have the story of what's happening as they pursue and they go into the place where the waters are parted, at least long enough for them to go to their deaths. And um, they say the following. Looks like about the last thing they ever say. Uh Uh-oh! Chariots are starting to get kind of bogged down here. This is looking like not a great plan. Maybe we should turn around. Quote, let us flee from the face of Israel. Why? Ki ani Yahuwah. They finally get it. Last thing they get in their lives. Because Yahuwah is fighting for them against us. Against Mitzrayim. They get it. Too late. Yahuwah then says to Moshe, stretch out your hand over the sea. Time to bring the waters back. Upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Wait a minute. Yeah, there you go. Verse 23, there was debate. Egyptians pursued, right? They went into the water, into the, the, the gap between the waters in the midst of the sea, and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. There's those words, horses, chariots, horsemen. And here it is. The waters came back upon their chariots, horsemen, Egyptians. Too late. So, there's the second open uh, bracket and closed bracket. What's in the middle? Because if you have a, um, a double enclosure of something that's being set off and put in the, the bright red flashing HTML symbol, well, what is it? Here's what's in the middle. Got to figure, this is important. Moshe, it says, stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared. The Egyptians fled against it, and Yahuwah overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned to cover the chariots, the host of Pharaoh that had come in after them, and, yep, that's it for them. So in this middle section here, the very middle part looks like this this sentence where it says, Yahuwah overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Now, I think that's fascinating for a couple reasons, right? I, I tried to set this up with, remember what we're talking about here. People are scared. Stand stand still. Fear not. See the salvation of Yahuwah. What are they going to see? Well, here it is. What is it that's being recorded for all history? Well, here it is. What is it that we see in addition? Well, we stand before what might be the most powerful army, even if it's been gayed up and transgendered down, um, but still, you know, they got weaponry, they got tools that uh, the peons aren't allowed to have. They got special forces training. These are scary dudes. And people are supposed to be scared of that. That's the intent. Uh, so what is the creator saying? I took care of the most powerful army on the planet then. What, what's his army? The sea returned to its strength. Egypt fled against it. And he overthrew them. Now, the interesting word here is this word overthrew. The first time this word appears in the Torah, in the Bible, in all of Scripture, is right here. And it's na'ar. He na'ard them. Uh, what does that mean? Well, overthrew. Uh, okay, overthrew. 
Well, that makes sense, right? He overturned the chariots. He over no, but the um, the the etymology of the word suggests this is from the the various concordances. You can look these things up online. It's nice we have these tools that we can look these things up. So you look this word up, you'll see. Yep, this is the first use in scripture. So the use of the word is kind of defined by the first time it appears. Uh, what happens? Well, one thing we know for sure: they were there, and then they weren't there. But the uh, the etymology of the word seems to suggest that this idea of na'ar is shaking off. And uh, one of the things that I saw, and I thought this was an interesting one, it's kind of like when a lion shakes its mane, right? Uh, maybe the lion's gone in the water, and there's water all over his mane, and he shakes his mane. You can see it. The water drops are flying off. Okay? Uh, if you imagine a great big lion... A huge lion and all kinds of little people that are tiny by comparison. They're trying to crawl up over this lion's back and over his mane and everything else, and they're they're trying to to uh, upset this great big lion. The lion shakes them off, and the little guys are just flying. Right? Have you seen some of the Godzilla movies or the King Kong movies? You, you see a similar picture of whatever this big beast is, this this thing that is um, that is the real power, just shaking the little people off, the little attackers, the little antagonists, uh, like they were nothing like water off of its mane. Okay, so I, I like that picture here. Yahuwah overthrew the... No, he didn't. He shook them off. They're gone in the midst of the sea. His sea, their armies, guess who wins? Waters return, cover the chariots. And then we get the final uh, sheen and tav of the Atbash. But the children of Israel walked upon the dry land in the midst of the sea. Waters on both sides, right hand and left hand. So, in the middle... The message, the point of the Atbash, the bright flashing red HTML symbol, he overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of his sea. Trivial. Shook them off. Like they weren't even there. And then what? Well, verse 30 tells us the then what. Then, thus, Yahuwah saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. They were so scared of them. Stand still and see the salvation of Yeshua. He shook them off like they were nothing. He saved them. And Israel saw, this is the one that I have highlighted. I think this is where we really see the story coming to the emotional climax. It's not just that Israel saw this miracle. It's not just that Israel saw the sea part. That is important, right? It has all of these prophetic understandings with uh, the baptism by water and with passing through the sea to salvation, right? All kinds of wonderful literary and and philosophical and uh, scriptural and, yes, spiritual implications. But when it comes to what really registers with us and our psyches, because our Creator knows the way our mind works, it's this. Israel saw their tormentors, the Egyptians, the taskmasters, the oh-so-scary dudes, the horsemen and their chariots, and their swords and their bucklers and their shields, dead. He was really scary about an hour ago, right? (laughs) How about now? Dead upon the seashore. And some of the Midrash suggests that um, a lot of the people that were looking and seeing here would actually recognize the faces that they saw lying dead. Oh yeah, that was Ahmed. He was a guy that was swacking me with a with a uh, um, a whip when I didn't have enough straw to make bricks. Oh, I remember that blankety blank. There he is. Mouth doesn't look so good anymore. So at this point, in other words, what we're seeing here is things register suddenly. Even though they've seen miracles, even though they've seen plagues, even though they have been scared out of their you know what's, 
and they have been told, stand still and see the salvation of Yah, now it registers, right? Something clicks in the mind, and they go, wow, they're dead. That threat is gone. I've been living under that threat all my life, and it's just gone. How's that for a mighty one? So, of all of the things that I think, I, I hope, when we look at the Atbash and look at all the, the things that are coming together here, and, uh, you know, where we stand and what we're looking at. And yes, uh, no doubt, it's scary. And yes, we can see what's going on in Texas, and we can recognize a thousand ways. And I'm sure, by the way, the deep state and the communist Chinese and the various tormentors that want this nation dead, buried, distributed, cut up, and occupied... And they're working together and they're working against each other because they all want their cut. They all want their piece of flesh. But ultimately, they're scary. And ultimately, this could go any number of ways. If we were playing a chess game, right? You say, well, you know, he could sacrifice a knight. He could sacrifice a bishop. He could do this. He could do that. They'll do all of the above. Oh, that's scary. How will this play out? Are we going to see civil war in Texas? Well, it's been set up. They certainly are jonesing for it. Then what? Well, in, in a human capacity, sorry, you've had the schnitzel. It's over, boy. You, you ain't going to get there from here. You can, you can have your little F-16, but the Pharaoh says, ha, you got your AR-15, I got my F-16. Ha, 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 ha. Who is this Yahuwah? I know him not. Ha, ha, ha. Um, are there parallels? Yeah, I, I certainly can't help but see it. Do we, in fact, suffer some of the same emotional parallels? Paralysis even? Look at this, how scary this is. Special forces busting down your door. The IRS on your doorstep. The ATF, the FBI coming to take your guns. The communist Chinese coming to rape your wives and daughters. Take your your animals. The uh, invading hordes coming across by the millions. Destroying ranches in Texas. And Big Brother just aiding and abetting them and giving them bus tickets and taking your retirement money and your tax dollars and saying, here, have a couple thousand bucks on the saps from the United States. They're paying for it. Hardy har. We look at that, and, and I think there is so much in terms of parallels. People that have been put upon, shat upon, lied to. And yeah, when they see the army, the mighty army that's arrayed against them, and all of Pharaoh's might, and his chariots and his horsemen, and his F-16s, and his fully auto weapons that you can't have, and his you name it, and his bioweapons now, too, and his thermonuclear weapons, and his surveillance technology. Big Brother is watching and listening. Oh, it's so scary. Well, guess what, folks? Who is this Yahuwah? I know him not. Here is the, here's the, uh, the real punchline. I'm going to skip ahead, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and fill in the gap in a second. Um, Moshe sings the song. He sings the song, the first song of Moses. He is highly exalted. I will sing unto Yahuwah. The horse, the rider, he's thrown into the sea. Yahuwah is my strength and my song. He has become le Yeshua. Isn't that amazing? He has become my salvation. He has literally become what he said he was going to become. He is my salvation. There is my El. I will glorify him. My Father's El, and I will exalt him. And then we have this. Now, this is one that I think is fascinating, too. And really, if, it's, if, you've, if you've got your Bible there, grab a highlighter, highlight this one. You can highlight this whole thing, actually, but especially this one. And I'm going to read it wrong, and then I'm going to read it right. Because the fact that it's messed up here, deliberately, twice, A, bugs me, and B, 
almost is more like um, you know another reason to highlight it. The Lord is a man of war. That's not his name. They took that out. They took out yod heh vav Hey. It's right there in the Hebrew. They put in capital L-O-R-D. Shame on those scumbags. But not only that, they did it twice in the same blankety-blanking verse. Two times in one verse, they took out one of the most important summaries in all of Scripture and perverted it, turned it upside down, and gutted it so that you might miss the point. What's the point? Yahuwah is ish malchama in the Hebrew. Ish malchama. So literally, a man of war. Okay, now I like Rashi's comment here. He says, now you got to understand it. In this context, it's not a man, it's the man. He is the man. He the man. He is the man of war. He is literally the master of war. Okay, now this is why I think the chess analogy is interesting, because the chess, the chess player par excellence, he's not referred to as just a man of chess. He is the master. He is a chess master. And they even have grandmasters, and of course, world champion grandmasters in chess. Well, Yahuwah is the world champion grandmaster of war. These people, they think they got their special forces and their troops and their little, their little gay, transgendered, uh, pink-wearing, you know, uh, high-heeled sailors with their uh, injections in their arms. <laughs> Sorry, you're out of your league. Yahuwah is a man of war. Ah, but we're not done yet. Yahuwah is his name. Yeah, they took it out there too. And it literally says, Yahuwah Shemo. Shem, name. Shemo, his name. Yahuwah Shemo. So he's just finished telling us. He's a man of war. He's a master of war. His name? yod heh vav He's proved it. Here it is. He's proved it again, but he has proved it. He has written it down. He has put it in the HTML symbols. The fact that he overthrew the Egyptians like a, Maya, uh, like a lion shaking little, little ants off of his beard. He is the master. Don't you be playing with the master. And by the way, when the master's on your team, you can do exactly what it says. Sit back, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of you. He will fight for you. You just hold your peace. So I look at all this and I think, yeah, that is truly amazing. Uh, we are at the open bracket place where, where we're waiting to see the closed brackets. We're waiting to see uh, what are those final sets of plagues that, that tell us how close we are. What do those look like? Well, you know, it's, again, it's, it's interesting and, and maybe a bit scary and also, I think, encouraging. I hope encouraging. That's why I talk about some of those things that aren't necessarily explicitly Scripture, but they, they give us this understanding of our attitude, which is important. When we begin to see these miracles play out, when we see them start to play out, we ought to think, well, you know what? I know what happens from here. I can take those steps. I can walk boldly in faith step into the water because he is going to complete the task that I've already seen he has started. And by the way, I have all the witness scripture that has provided for us too, on top of that. So we should have plenty of reason to fear not. Now that doesn't mean that as, as humans who are subject to you know knife wounds and sword wounds and thermonuclear attacks and bullet wounds, that we don't have a little trepidation perhaps. But ultimately, that's why fear not is a, uh, is a wonderful thing, but not necessarily as always easy to do as we might like. And it's why it's important to practice, right? Muscle memory, uh, going through the motions, praying about it, thinking about it, understanding the lessons of history and of Scripture, seeing what these people did. All of that is key to it. So when we ask the question, yeah, what about now, then um, answer 
Go see what happened. See, you know, check out the old paths. Check out the things that we already have his witness on and see if that doesn't help us to understand what it means to fear not. Now, I want to emphasize one more element of this. Uh, let me read the next, um, <clears throat> not the whole next couple of um, verses, but at least one of them anyway. This is from the Song of Moses. Uh, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he has cast into the sea, shook them off. His chosen captains, they're sunk there, gone forever. The depths cover them. They went down like a rock, like a stone. Thy right hand, O Yahuwah, glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Yahuwah, dashes in pieces the enemy. Those scary special forces do. Those scary thermonuclear weapons and subs and mortars and you name it. The greatness of your excellency in that you overthrew them, those that rise up against you. You send forth your wrath. It consumes them like stubble. The blasts of your nostrils piled the waters up. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. Now here is one of the I will statements that is a, a contrast to the I will of what Yahuwah will do for us. This is what the adversary says and those that serve him. And see if this doesn't sound like something you see on CNN or from The View. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will send my special forces. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. I'll take your farms, your ranches, your wives, your daughters, anything I want, your little boys. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I'll sniff their hair. I'll cut off their gen- I mean, you know, you can't look at this without saying, Wow, that reads like everything I see on the Sunday evening news. I will draw my sword, my F-16s. You take your puny little AR-15. My hand shall destroy them. Well, that's what the song says. Guess what? They were wrong. They came up against the master. And he shook them off like ants off of a lion's mane. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Okay, here you go. Now, this is a line that I love. And by the way, if you've ever heard the song, um, it goes like this. Mikamoka Belim Yahuwah. Who is like you, O Yahuwah, among the mighty? Who is like you? among the Chinese Communist military, or the Soviet military, or the American Soviet military, or any of those that uh, threaten to come after you. Send ultimatums and say, we will continue to invade, and what the hell are you going to do about it, you little slave you? Who is like you, O Yahuwah? Answer, they're not. And that's the key to remember. Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Isn't that wonderful? And I know what a lot of us are thinking, because that was then, this is now. He's hidden his face for so many years. How do we really know that when push comes to shove, he'll be there? And and one of the things, this has been on my mind a lot. I've had this discussion, it seems like, many times over the last uh, several years, and with individuals and people that I respect but have certain disagreements with. And, you know, uh, do, we know, do we know his name and how important is his name? Well, it's not so much important that we get the vowel pointers right uh, and we say uh, Yeshua uh, or uh, Yahushua rather than Jesus. But the point is, do we know? Do we really know the real one from the fake? And I've said this a thousand times. If the fake, if Jesus did away with the law, well, then he's a liar and the truth is not in him. 
Hell, you can't even read Matthew 21, 19 through 21. His first public address and not recognize. Oh, if Jesus said that, he sure as hell isn't the one that was talking about the uh, the things he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Yahushua said he wasn't changing one yoda tittle of his Torah. See, so it's, uh, it is about his name. It is about understanding the difference between some old Lord, some Baal, because there's lots of them, some Christ, because lots of Christos, folks, but the real one, the one true Torah made flesh, the salvation of Yah. Do we know what he said? Do we know why he said he isn't changing anything and hasn't, long as heaven and earth still exist? So it's not so important, in other words, that we get the pronunciation and the vowel pointers right, I don't believe, as it is we do the character. The character matters. That's the whole essence of this story. His character is, he is, Ani, Yahuwah, and They will know, Egyptians will know. We ought to know. If we're fixing to enter the biggest battle in all of human history, do we at least think we should know who's leading us? Whose team we're on? I know it's probably important that we should know the team leader's name and, and correct pronunciation, but they didn't. A lot of them may not have understood that. I'll tell you one thing. We just saw it, and that was why I was careful to begin the way I did. They whined. <laughs> oh, oh, here we are, going to die. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. No, I didn't. Sit still. Stand. See. But before, before they even got it, he was protecting them, and he was telling them, and they were still whining about it. And you know what? Here's part of the rest of the story. They weren't done whining yet. Now, there's good news and there's bad news in this part of the story. And part of the uh, the good news is, I think, and I hope, and I pray, that by seeing this part of the story, when we get to go through a similar pattern, maybe we can avoid some of the pitfalls, like some of the whining. But let's go through it. After the Song of Moses, we have this bit of the story. Miriam, first time she's named, right? We know that's the sister of Moshe, and it says here it's the sister of Aaron, but up until this point, her name has never appeared in Scripture. Interesting. She took a timbrel, and they went out dancing, and they sang, Sing to Yahuwah, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So Moshe led Israel onward from that place. They went out into the wilderness of Shur, three days Bamidbar, in the wilderness, and no water. So they have just seen arguably the greatest miracle, um, at least that any of them have ever seen in their lives, but probably the greatest in the book. Got some others, but this is one of the biggies, right? They go into the wilderness, three days, no water. They're starting to get thirsty. Yeah, maybe they're going to whine. Maybe that's not a surprise. So they get to this place, which has an interesting name, Marah, which means literally bitter. They went to a place called Bitter. What do they find? They couldn't drink the waters that are bitter in the place called Bitter because, yeah, guess what? They were bitter. So they called the name of the place. You got it. Bitter. Marah. And what did the people do? Well, you knew this too. <laughs> they muttered. They whined. They pissed and moaned. That was a phrase I knew when I was growing up. And that's that's what we got to say. Oh, what are we going to drink? They cried unto Yahuwah. Moshe went to, uh, to Yahuwah. And Yahuwah showed him a tree. Here's a tree. Cast it into the waters. And the waters were suddenly made sweet. All right. Interesting. So they, the, the first thing they do, three days in the wilderness, they, they whine again. They've just come through a great miracle, but maybe this is human nature, right? I'm not going to criticize them too much for being thirsty to the point of thinking they're going to keel over and starting to whine a bit. So they complain. 
uh, Moses goes to Yahuwah. He shows him a tree. They throw it in the water. So waters were made sweet. So it says there, he made for them a statute and an ordinance. He made a hook. They mishpat. A hook and a mishpat. So the question is, is uh, comes up, well, exactly what? What is the hook and what is the mishpat? Now, Rashi offers a couple possibilities. I think one of them is for sure, and that is probably the Sabbath. And as to why I'd say that the Sabbath is one of these two, well, we're going to see that in this very portion. And we're going to see it in the next one, too. So interestingly, first thing they do, after they come through the Red Sea, they get their baptism by um, uh, water, and then they don't have water, and then they whine, and then they find the sweet water, because he makes it for them. And then he gives them a statute and an ordinance. And uh, so is it uh, Shabbat? Is that one of them? Is it the red heifer, which is the hook, the most famous hook in the book? Um, right, do this because I say so. It's not going to make any sense. Uh, Sabbath, maybe likewise, although we know in Genesis why that makes sense. That's why it probably is called a, uh, a mishpat rather than a hook. And he says the following. He is capitalized, and I think that's correct. Because um, remember, the translators put the capitalization in there. If you will diligently hearken to the voice of Yehuriel, and will do that which is right in his eyes, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes. As of yet, folks, we're going to see this real soon. They have not been delivered the Ten Commandments. They may have one, one statute and one hook at this point. But I will then put none of the diseases upon you which I put upon the Egyptians, for I am Yahuwah Rapha. I am your healer. I am Yahuwah Rapha. Okay, so, um, hmm. Uh, the story isn't over yet. Uh, let's read just a bit more. They took their journey from the place called Elim, and they came into the wilderness of Sin, between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, which seems to correspond to the second Passover after they came out of Egypt. And all kol edat of the congregation of the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, they did what? They whined, they murmured against Moshe and against Aaron, Bamidbar. They're in the wilderness. Now, this word, again, I mentioned it before, and it's going to appear over and over and over and over again in the next um, about eight verses or so. Taluna, murmurings. And indeed, the first use of that word is right here in this story. And it goes like this. Oh, oh, wait a second. This is awfully familiar. Oh, I sure wish we died there at the hand of Yahuwah in the land of Egypt because we had all kinds of good food. We had bread. Oh, you brought us out here in the wilderness just to kill us with hunger. Okay. The response to the uh, whining, Yahuwah says to Moshe, Behold, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. Lechem, from heaven. People go out, they'll gather a portion every day. And I will test them to see whether they will walk in Torah, my Torah, or not. Now, by the way, this is the second time that that's been, been laid out. And when he gave them that statute and the ordinance, it says he tested them. He's testing them here. Is there a moral? Is there a lesson? Is there a parallel? Is there something for us to be paying attention to so that when we come through whatever it is that we are going to be faced with, and then we do see additional testing, can we take some of the lessons to heart? I hope so. And then he lays out the point of the uh, Lechem and the sixth day and the seventh day, and here it goes. <clears throat> I will ca cause it to pass that on the um, on the sixth day of the week, they can prepare this man. Oh, they don't know yet what it's going to be called, this stuff that's going to come down from heaven. And it'll be twice as much as they need for every other day. 
So, Moshe and Aaron explained it to the Benai Israel. At evening, you'll know that Yahuwah has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that funny? They should have known it already. They've seen these dead people lying on the shore. They sung the song of Moses. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. Uh, you know, some of us might say, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? There's a song that comes to mind from Passover, right? But what? He has also been hearing your uh, uh, telunachem, your murmurings, your whining against Yahuwah. Who are you guys to murmur against us? And here it'll be, says Moshe, when Yahuwah gives you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. You'll know that he's heard uh, your telunatekim, your murmurings, the things you murmur against him. And again, what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against Yahuwah. The word appears several more times in the story. Murmurings, murmurings. Come near, come before Yahuwah, because he'd heard your uh, telunatekim, your murmurings. Came to pass, as Aaron spoke, unto the whole congregation, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahuwah appeared in the cloud. This time Yahuwah spoke, and he said, I have heard, guess what? The uh, telunat, the murmurings of the Benai Israel. Tell them. At dusk you'll eat flesh, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread, and you shall know, you, okay? Pharaoh knows it, even though it's a bit late for him. All of Egypt knows it. Yeah, it's too late for them too. You shall know. Ki ani Yahuwah Elohechem. I will be what I will be, and you will know that ki ani Yahuwah Elohechem, your El. Came to pass then at evening, quails come up, they covered the camp. In the morning, there was this layer of dew all around. People asked, what? Ma? Ma? What's that? And this is the lechem, the bread, which Yahuwah has given you to eat. And of course, the name is, what? What? Ma? Na. Uh, manna. And then he gives them this. Now, I'm going to suggest that this, too, is part of... We're going to, by the way, see another Atbash that includes this one. Something about this is important. He said twice, I gave you a statute and an ordinance. What is it? I am going to see if you will obey Torah T, my teaching, my instruction, my statutes, my judgments, my commandments, so forth. This is part of the test. And then what's the next thing? Although maybe it's the same thing that has already been given. He says, this is that which Yahuwah has spoken. Coming up on the Sabbath, tomorrow. It's a Sabbath, a holy day of rest unto Yahuwah. Bake what you'll bake, seize what you siege, and anything that lays over, you can keep till morning. First time, right? They found out the hard way that you tried to keep it overnight. Ugh, it's yucky, full of worms, rotted. Mm. Don't do that. But on Friday evening, into the Sabbath, you can hold it over. It's going to be fine, because you aren't going to go out and gather anymore. So here is... Um, it certainly looks like not only the first of the commandments, but one that was given uh, along with the, um, literally, the first time that they come out while they're still whining. Before they even recognize so much of what they need to know as truth, they are already getting this particular commandment. Eat today, says Moses, for today is a Sabbath unto Yahuwah. You're not going to find any out there in the field. And it came to pass, they went out, and they didn't find any. And then Moses is told by Yahuwah, <laughs> you can guess, right? How long are you going to keep doing this? How long are you going to refuse to keep my commandments and my instruction? Again, the timing is what I want to emphasize here. They have not been given the Ten Commandments. 
And we hear, though, the Ten Commandments, that's the only thing that's really important, right? The Sabbath was given, no doubt about it. Was given, was reinforced, was instructed before they actually got the rest of them. And it's about the testing. How long, he says, you're going to keep refusing to keep my commandments and my instruction? See that Yahuwah has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day two sets, uh, t- enough bread for two days. Abide. Stay home. Stay in your place. Let no man go out of his place on that seventh day. So, people finally got it. It says they rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel, Benai Israel, called the name of that stuff, Mana. And it describes it. Okay, so th- this is kind of fascinating. There is a, there's one more story yet. And maybe, maybe this is the piece where uh, all the rest of the pieces come together. Uh, like I said, in this particular Torah portion, after Pharaoh has shellacked them, sent them out, not just let them go, but sent them out, and then huh, he follows after them, and that's the last thing he ever does. All of this other stuff happens. We see a confrontation which is truly biblical in scope. He is demonstrated. Ki ani Yahuwah, he made that point clear, and he's also literally the man, the master of war. Yahuwah is my name. So what happens? They go out. They journey from the wilderness of sin by their stages at the commandment of Yahuwah. And again. Yep, we're seeing this. And we're going to see it again, too. It's a, um, it's a costly lesson. There was no water for the people to drink. So they did what we've kind of gotten used to. They strove with Moshe. Give us water to drink. Why are you messing with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why? Nope, that's not what he said. Why do you test Yahuwah? What Moshe said. Verse 3 in chapter 17 says, Well, the people thirsty. They thirsted there for water, and they, yeah, guess what? They whined. They murmured against Moshe. Why? You know what? I'm already getting sick of hearing this, and, and we're just reading it one time. you got to figure Moshe's probably even sicker of it, right? Why, oh, why have you brought it up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and, and all of us here, and our cattle, too, with this thirst? Oh, says Moses, what am I going to do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. Okay, I can relate to his frustration. He, uh, he hears from Yahuwah. Pass on before the people. Take with you the elders of Israel. Take your rod, the one you smote the river with, remember the Nile. Take it in your hand and go. Now behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb. Now this is fascinating. This is certainly something where uh, we would say, oh yeah, here is another uh, demonstration of Yeshua, the salvation of Yah. Salvation from armies, salvation from thirst, physical want and need. He saved them from hunger before. Now he's showing them what it's like to have the living waters, if you will. Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb. You shall smite the rock, hit it with the stick, and there water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moshe did so, it says, in the sight of the elders of Israel. The place, the name of the place, was called um, Massah and Meribah. Two names. And this has the name of basically temptation and strife. (laughs) That that kind of fits, doesn't it? Because of the striving of the Benai Israel. Because they tested Yahuwah, asking this question, is he really among us or not? If there's one thing, well, there's actually a whole bunch of stuff, but part of the reason why I think this Torah portion is just so amazing is because it encapsulates so much of human nature right here. You'd think, folks, if there's anybody on the planet in all of human history that would say, Yahuwah is with us, I have seen the miracles. I've seen the plagues. I've seen him throw a tree and and make the water sweet. I've seen the dead people that tormented me on the shore. 
Wow! Don't I get it? They ask this question. Is Yahuwah among us or not? <laughs> you you got to ask, what's it going to take, right? And I think probably it's fair that the Creator knows the answer to that question, but He's probably still thinking it occasionally. Yeah, what's it going to take? Uh, how long are you going to keep uh, refusing to obey me? Keep my commandments, my instruction. Answer, we're still seeing that today, aren't we? In spite of all of this. So, is Yahuwah among us or not? Now, here comes one of those dramatic insightful, slam-the-door kind of statements that begins to answer the question. And this is how the Torah portion ends. No water. Water is striving. He smites the rock, the rock that's with them, the rock that Paul later says, guess, guess who that is, guess what that is, the salvation of Yah. On more than one level, it's uh, literally, it's, it's, it's written philosophically, uh, intellectually, in every way you can see it in this parsha here. Then come, then came Amalek, it says. Then came Amalek. So they asked the question, is Yahuwah among us or not? And they get the answer. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now Amalek, of course, and we're going to see it here and we're going to see it elsewhere. Amalek is kind of the, the um, antagonist of, uh, of much of Scripture. There are other people groups, but it's Amalek that he says, Yahuwah says, I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Lots of things are spoken, um, almost all of them negative. I can't think of anything positive about Amalek. Moshe says to Joshua, his number two man, uh, other than his brother, uh, choose some men, go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I'm going to go up on top of that hill with the rod, the staff of Elohim in my hand. So Joshua did, they fought. And we know the story. Um, Moshe, Aaron, and Hur... They went up to the top of the hill. And it's a good thing that Moshe had some folks with him because he's going to need them. And it came to pass that whenever Moshe held up his hand with the staff in it, evidently, Israel prevailed. When he, when he got tired, he had to, had to rest his arms, he drops his hand. Amalek prevailed. So he wants them to win. He's got to hold his hands up. But he gets tired. His hands are heavy. They took a stone. They let him sit on it. He sat there. Then Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, got one on each side of him, and uh, until the going down of the sun. And during that whole time, Moshe's hands were up. Joshua um, basically put Amalek to the um, lefi cherev, to the mouth of the sword. And um, then Yahuwah says to Moshe, write this memorial in the book. Rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. They built an altar and they called it. Here's the second name of the creator, the second variation of Yahuwah with an adjective in the, uh, in the Parsha. They called it Yahuwah Nisi, my banner. Can we see how this kind of answers the question? They strove. They get water out of the rock, the rock. They ask the question, is Yahuwah among us or not? You'd think they know the answer, but nope. Then comes Amalek, fights with them. The banner is lifted up. They kick butt. They take names. Moshe built an altar. The name, Yahuwah Nisi. Yahuwah, my banner. And then he says, this is the last verse in the portion, uh, Yahuwah, the hand upon the throne of Yahuwah. Yahuwah will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, uh, so much in the portion, and so much that's, um, I, I can't help but think, again, it's, I hope, and I believe, I think it's about as inspiring as it could possibly be. This is the kind of thing that as we look at the place where we are, in history, and literally in um, a prophetic 
cusp, if you will, standing on a transition. Is the mark of the beast at hand? Well, you know, we, we've said this. Um, we can at least, very least, we can smell it from here. We've seen aspects of it. We know the parameters. They're all getting more clear by the day. Now, how do we get there from here, right? If, if all of the um, uh, infrastructure that is built up to make sure that no one is allowed to buy or sell without the mark, if it's all destroyed in a nuclear war, well, that doesn't happen, at least not the way we think. So I would tend to think, right, as an engineer who tends to look at things analytically, hmm, I can understand scripture, I can understand some of the prophetic elements, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I know that if we get to a place where this technology is able to make sure that no one buys or sells without the permission of the the evil beast system, the mark, uh, then I can kind of see what would survive whatever is coming next. And isn't that interesting, too? Because uh, here we have the people of of uh, the mixed multitude, Israel, delivered from the hand of Egypt, the greatest military power on the planet. And then what? More challenges. I guess that's bad news. And yep, Amalek is still out there. Amalek is going to have, uh, Yahuwah is going to have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I guess that still applies, too. Uh, we still evidently are dealing with Amalek. And when I see Amalek and when I see dishonest weights and measures, as we've talked about in other parts of the Torah, those parallels, I think, are real clear. So much, in other words, of what we're seeing today, uh, literally, if you understand Scripture, if you've read Torah, if you put the pieces together, it's almost impossible, I think, to miss all of these connections and to ask, you know, what about um, what about this is, is demonstrative of, of where we are and what we're doing. Well, I laid out one other question. This is kind of how I want to end today. Is this idea of... Um, got lots of people here in this group. And um, some of them, are obviously, at a greater level of, if you will, spiritual maturity than others. you got a lot of whiners, no doubt about it. We know that the, the history of this group is a lot of people are going to die in the wilderness. Some are going to make it, um, you know, 38, 40 years, but eventually their carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness too. Ultimately, it's just a tiny remnant. It's just Joshua and Caleb that that ultimately enter into the land. So that's a remnant for you, a very tiny remnant. Uh, I do think, I hope, and I pray that the uh, greater exodus will have more people who will make it all the way through, perhaps because we have the witness of this one to look back on and say, well, let's avoid some of those pitfalls, try to try to cut short on the whining, try to walk in more obedience up front. And, and therein lies the rub. It's this idea of obedience. And this is the one that I struggle with. Because I look out and I see the whore church. And as you know, if you've, you've heard me on any of a number of Sabbaths, I am no fan of the whore church, nor of the whore synagogue. And essentially a church that has done all of those things that Yahuwah says are the whoring wife's things. Committed adultery, idolatry, with fake gods, bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees, and a whole lot of crap. And they've preached another Jesus whom we've not preached. And they've said, see, this is the prosperity gospel. And then people ask this question, why is there no power in the church? Because the church is a whore! Because it's full of idolatry. Dead men's sepulchers. Well, wait a minute, that's the whore synagogue too. But ain't it all similar? So we might tend to say, all right, maybe we don't want anything to do with these people. Right? We, we want to. Now, I do believe that there's an element of self-selection. But wait a minute, we've already seen that coming out in this story too. There were people, remember, in Egypt that became part of the mixed multitude. Among them, a fellow named Caleb. Caleb. He was not born into the 12 tribes. He was grafted in. He later became, if we read the history, right, he later became the leader of the tribe of Judah. 
That's quite a move, right? From a guy who was literally a dog, that was what his name means, not part of the 12 tribes, but he volunteered, he came along, and he was one of two. He was fully half of those that ended up making it all the way and became a, uh, a leader of Judah in the process. So there's an example of someone who arguably we might have said, hey, he, he's not going to amount to anything. He's not even part of the tribe, any of the tribes. So I guess the point here is uh, we don't know. And um, we, we certainly look at and we, we understand that there's a lot of whining going on. And, and I'll admit, uh, you, you've heard it in my voice. I hear the whining and I see people asking these questions and, and you know disregarding the things that are so important in Scripture and saying, oh, I don't care to eat what he says to eat. I don't care about keeping his Sabbaths. I don't care about keeping his Moedim. I like Christmas a lot better than I do Sukkot or Passover. And I don't care about those things. Well, you know what? He thinks they're important. And eventually, I think either you're going to think they're important, or how long will you keep walking in rebellion? And uh, just rest assured, I'm not sure what it's going to take, but uh, there are going to be folks that are going to walk part of the way and not make it into the land. He delivered everybody, everybody who came out of Mitzrayim, who was kicked out through the Red Sea, and showed them all things that, I guess you could argue that their faith wasn't even ready for yet, but they needed to see it, and they did. They had that demonstration. I find that overwhelming. He's willing to do that for people who were still, right? A couple of episodes later, they're still out there whining, and he still shows them. He still shows them the rock. He still shows them the bread from heaven. You can read John, and you see Yeshua talking about all those things, right? I am the bread from heaven. I am the water of life, the you can't miss the parallels. They're right there. Isn't it funny that people will still say he did away with his own law and they don't recognize that he is the bread of life and he is the literal uh, water of life too? Hmm. What if we get his name wrong? Well, there are those that don't know his name and don't care to and don't know his character and don't care to and we already know what he says about those. Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Didn't we do great miracles in your name? Cast out demons in your name? You know his response. Depart from me, you who are workers of lawlessness, you who are Torahless. I never knew you. He will say that. He's already told us the way that leads to destruction is broad, it's wide. A lot of folks find that path and will make it. The way that leads to life, it's narrow. Few there be that find it. Okay, so I guess I come down on it this way. I look at all the things that we're facing and I say, no doubt about it, this is scary. No doubt about it, there's going to be whiners along the way. And uh, certainly we're going to have to learn to deal with the whiners and we're going to try to be as patient as we can. And uh, if Moshe can get frustrated with him, and we see that he did, matter of fact, it cost him ultimately because he got too frustrated. Well, there's a lesson too. Uh, I guess the moral of the story for all of us uh, less perfect human beings is uh, we got some work to do along the way. And uh, I'm going to try to not necessarily prejudge those who are going to make it and those who are not. But I am going to say, what is it what is incumbent upon each of us to do? And we see this throughout the story. When the time comes, step up. right? When the miracles begin to happen, be willing to be among those who take the first steps, who, who step out in faith, who walk. Miriam first gets named in this portion. What's she doing? She's singing and dancing before Yahuwah associated with this song of Moses. Something wonderful about that. 
So there are lots of things that we can see in here and say, okay, this is important to take to heart. And it's important to have these things in mind because, because folks, when the, when the you-know-what hits the fan, and when the, um, the armies of the, uh, the satanic nations of the world are gathered, and they're busting down doors, and they're nuking cities, and they're farming the yards. That's one of those military terms you'll hear, uh, right? When, uh, when the Biden Fuhrer terms those F-16s against uh, what would have been his own people, but obviously they're not because he doesn't care about them and, and wants them dead, and they're willing to, to Fauciize them into the grave with the, the mRNA vaccines and the next uh, disease X and the Ebola that they're planning on releasing. This is all scary stuff. Can we not recognize who's on the right team and who's not? So far, so good. Yep. If they're coming and they're wearing the uniform of the adversary and they're killing people, uh, color me among those who's going to suggest uh, probably those aren't the guys that are going to be the ones you want to follow. But as for the rest, well, I guess, you know, here's another way to put it. Uh, Yahuwah gave all of those folks the benefit of the doubt. He showed the whiners. Exactly what he's showing all of us, Ki and the Yahuwah. He gave them manna. He gave them water. He gave them the water of life. He gave that to all of us, arguably, right? Uh, there in, um, in Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago. He gave us all the demonstration that we needed. And it has always boiled down to, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. Make teshuva, right? Come all ye who will. Seek and ye shall find. So as for all of us, I guess the uh, the bottom line is is be ready. Be ready in season and out to give an account for the hope that's within us. Be ready to tell people. Be ready to blow the shofar. And just understand that we're going to see some really challenging stuff. And um, I hope that we'll be able to uh, be ready, be, uh, be honed by the things that are coming, and to recognize that ultimately the, um, the real <laughs> overwhelming lesson here is, you ain't going to do it in your own power. It's not me and my preparations and all of the wonderful things that I've done, yada, yada. No, that isn't going to be what saves us. And neither is your special forces training or your advanced military weapons skills. It's all about who is the master of war and who's not, and who do we serve. So uh, I hope with all of that in mind, um, we can uh, we can continue to, to try to walk in obedience and understand. So let's pray. Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Father, we come before you, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that we are able to gather together on your Sabbath, that iron sharpens iron. We thank you that you have preserved it for us and that you've shown us so, so many of these things. Abba, we know that there are challenging times ahead. We thank you that you've put us here for such a time as this. Even though there are elements that might seem um, scary, we know we're supposed to fear not. Give us understanding. Give us your shalom. Help us to be strong and of good courage. Kazakh. Fill us with your ruach. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming. Help us to be found doing your work. So many things that you've told us to pray about and to be ready for. We pray, Father, that you would show us the importance and give us the strength to continue walking a narrow path. Let your Torah be a lamp to our feet so that we do not veer either to the right nor to the left. As we look at what's going to happen and the things that are coming, we pray too that you would make our path straight. Show us these things. Help us to be where it is you have for us to be. 
If we need to come together in groups and in places, then guide us in those directions and in those places. But above all, Father, we simply pray that we would be doing your work from now through all that lies ahead. And that even even more so, that we would be good and faithful servants unto you. Thank you for your miracles. Help us to be ready and to have eyes to see them, to recognize them for what they are and what they will be as we walk through uh, these times. All of this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are Yahuwah Rapha, our healer, our banner, Yahuwah Nisi. You are our master, our savior. You are the master of war. You are our king, our salvation, the Torah-made flesh, our Mashiach, our all-sufficient El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. Um, if there's nothing else in the way of questions, let me check both of the rooms here. Nope, don't see anything. Then uh, let's close with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Israel. Say to them, Ivarekaka Yahuwah Varishmareka, Yaher Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichuneka, Isaiahuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhuhu